You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. All right. I think uh, I think we'll start uh, for the benefit of Tony and, and Nicole, who will be watching, uh, joining us uh, by uh, uh, not Skype actually by Zoom. So new technology. Uh, we are uh, in political science seminar room. It's a full room, so there are about uh, I don't know maybe fifty people here, uh, and I suspect. Some are here because they're interested in the Kurdish issue. Some are interested because they're interested in Catalan. We're all interested about the world, what's happening and what that's uh, <laughs> likely to 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 mean. Uh, I'll just say very briefly: the three uh, participants uh, are uh, Tony Geist. Uh, many of you know he's a professor of Spanish and comparative literature here at the University of Washington, but he's on sabbatical now and he's joining us from Santa Rosa, where he is surrounded by fire. So exactly, he and not, not metaphorically. <laughs> That's right, exactly. And uh, but we're very grateful that he can he can join us. And Nicole Watts, um, how can we get Nicole up here? I wonder. Nicole, I'm on my screen. Okay. All right. Here's Nicole. <laughs> Nicole, uh, some of you know Nicole, uh, received her PhD from the University of Washington several years ago, and uh, currently she's a professor of political science at San Francisco State University, and she has written books and articles that deal with Kurdish politics in Turkey and in uh, northern Iraq. Uh, and in terms of its implications for comparative politics and international relations. And uh, she was also in Kurdistan during the referendum uh, two weeks ago. So we're very excited that she can join us. And then um, with me here is Lee Mercer uh, from um, Spanish and Portuguese department and uh, associate professor of Spanish. And her research area is uh, contemporary uh, cinema and culture uh, of Spain, mm -hmm. and uh, we are very pleased that she is with us too. So, uh, in the interest of time, Nicole uh, has to leave us by about 3.15, uh, so in the interest of time, we will just get to uh, our discussions and questions. Actually, I thought I would start with Tony and, uh, and ask her, and how do I get Tony? I'm here. Tony, all right. <coughs> Can you talk some more, Tony? I'm here. I'm not, I haven't okay, gone anywhere. Go. It's voice activated. Good, very good. So uh, when you want to be wow. seen, just say something. Okay, <laughs> I'll keep talking. That's right. So uh, I thought I would ask all of you, actually, the general question of, why now? Why is this happening? And uh, what do you make of uh, uh, both the Spanish reaction to this event and uh, your kind of thoughts about how this is likely uh, to unfold in the near future? 
Yeah, thanks, Rasat. Thanks for including me. Um, uh, first of all, it's very, very complex, and I have no idea how it's going to unfold. I just spent the last three hours watching the, the Catalan Parliament, the Generalitat, um, in which the Puigdemont, the president of, of the autonomous region of Catalonia, declared uh, unilateral um, independence and said that uh, Catalonia will become an independent republic. Uh, then he ended the ended the, the session, there were a number of other interventions. He spoke for about 45 minutes in Catalan with one brief interlude in, in Spanish. Uh, and then afterwards, the mostly opposition uh, had 10 minutes each to respond. Um, the response varied from um, extreme opposition to uh, the whole process of independence and the, the Declaration of Independence um, to varying nuances from the extreme right to the extreme left. So it was extremely interesting. And at the end, then Puigdemont, the president, backed off and said, we declare independence, we declare Catalonia an independent republic, but we are suspending that declaration for now. So um, what we haven't seen yet is the federal government, the, the Spanish government's response to it. And that actually is probably happening right about now. Um, there have been meetings in the Moncloa, in the, the government um, offices in Madrid. Um, and it's, uh, who knows what the, the response can be anywhere from um, application of Article 155 of the Constitution which allows them, allows the federal government to suspend all or part of the um, statutes of autonomy, which have been granted, constitutionally granted um, to Catalonia, to the, the various autonomous, there are five autonomous regions of Spain, um, and it can suspend all or part of them. Um, so we don't know if that's going to happen or not. Um, and there, it's, 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 as I say, it's extremely co complex. In the period, the couple of weeks leading up to the referendum, and I was in northern Spain. I had been in Catalonia. I was there two weeks ago, the week before, the weekend before the referendum. And there was tremendous, and during La Merced, actually, the, which is, Lee knows very well, is the, is the Catalan national uh, holiday and party and great parades and so forth. And there was, uh, there were Catalan independence flags everywhere. People were wearing them as capes. Um, and, uh, but then it was very interesting to see the response in other parts of Spain. The Basque country, of course, was, which also has had historically an independence movement for, uh, many years, um, was, uh, there was a great deal of solidarity with, with the Catalan movement, uh, not so much in Asturias, just a little farther west, and then back in Castile, um, there was tremendous opposition to it, um, and very strong feelings. So my, my sense is that this has been extraordinarily divisive. That is, it's, it's built on historical um, schisms within, within the country, within Spain, 
um, and which have become greatly uh, exacerbated in the last 10 years, I would say, specifically in the last five years. But apparently one of the, um, one of the reasons that, uh, that Puigdemont, that the president backed off, both declared independence and then suspended it, which apparently has been extremely disappointing to many of the supporters, um, is that uh, industry, uh, multinationals and um, major companies have been fleeing Catalonia like crazy because they as soon as independence as it became clear that they were going to announce independence they're moving their capital out of Catalonia um, and many people are moving their bank accounts uh, out of Catalonia as well so the um, after the announcement um, this afternoon uh, of independence um, the largest publishing company in the Spanish-speaking world um, uh, moved. They, they announced that they were leaving. They were moving to Madrid, leaving uh, Planeta, which is huge, both in Spain and Latin America, that they are moving their headquarters to Madrid. So there's been a lot of, uh, lot of kickback, and it's really um, who knows what's going to happen. And we'll know tomorrow, apparently, there's a meeting of the, of the Council of Ministers, uh, in Madrid uh, to deal with this and they'll decide, uh, they'll make some kind of proclamation. And probably Lee can talk later about the response of the central government to this and Rajoy, the right-wing minister who is governing in a, in a, co a very odd coalition, right? Spain has been in political crisis for the last um, three years. Uh, but, I mean, real political crisis for the last three years, right, with redefinition of, of different parties and so forth. So um, that's a start, anyway. Thank you. Nicole, say something. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me to participate in the discussion. And can you hear me now and everybody yes. see me? Yes. Yeah, it's an honor to be here with all of you, and I wish I could be there in the room with you all. Yeah, it's very, very interesting, actually, to, to think about the comparisons and to get that kind of up-to-date view on what's happening in Catalonia. I know one of the challenges for me is as soon as I leave the Kurdistan region of Iraq, it feels very difficult to actually figure out what's going on and to get concrete information, which is challenging when you're there, but even worse than you're, you know, when you're away. Uh, in terms of why now, I think um, the Kurds of Iraq perhaps more so than the Kurdish movements in Iran and in Turkey have for a long time made it very clear that the majority of their people, the majority of ordinary Kurds in Northern Iraq would, if they could have it, get independence. They would, they would support independence. But the Kurdish leadership has been convinced that it was worth their while to remain within the framework of a united Iraq since 2005. And I think one of the major factors leading to the referendum now was that as of, I'd say, starting in around 2014, the Kurdish leadership increasingly felt that it was no longer worth their while to stay within the framework of a united Iraq. And this was especially due to the financial crisis and the financial fight that emerged between Erbil, which is the seat of the Kurdistan regional government, and Baghdad in 2014. And of course, this was in the context of the war against ISIS. And at that time, the Iraqi Kurds took three of the five oil fields around Kirkuk, and they also were able to begin exporting oil directly from the Kurdistan region to Turkey. 
and the Iraqi official Iraqi pipeline was damaged by ISIS and so they could no longer do that. So the Kurds began exporting oil unofficially without sending those revenues back to Baghdad as they were supposed to do legally. And Baghdad froze their 17% allocation that they were supposed by constitution supposed to give to the Kurdistan region. So all of a sudden, the salaries that uh, around 60% of uh, Iraqi Kurds depend on the public sector for their incomes, that money that they had traditionally received from Baghdad, they weren't getting it anymore. So at the same time as we have the war against ISIS, and of course, the Kurds being intimately involved in that, um, a major, major financial crisis hit the Kurdistan region. So that, I think, was one of the major factors leading up to that. And for the shorter term, the Kurdish leadership was convinced to hold off on the independence referendum because of the fight against Islamic State. But especially this year, earlier this spring, they began talking more and more about, about holding a referendum, initially in April. And then in June, President Masoud Barzani, who's the president of the Kurdistan region of Iraq, he called the referendum and said, we're going to hold it on September 25th. And I think also another couple of factors, the Kurds were in a very advantageous position militarily because um, when ISIS looked like it was about to take Kirkuk, the Iraqi Kurds were able to hold off ISIS and move in to areas that the Iraqi, the central Iraqi army had formerly held. So they gained control of Kirkuk. Um, they were also, of course, very closely involved in the fight against ISIS in Mosul. So they were in a strong position militarily. And then there are some domestic variables, of course, that are at play here with um, Barzani wanting, I think, to cement his legacy, somebody who fought for decades against Baghdad, of course, coming from this very powerful and influential Barzani family that has played a historic role. And I think he wanted to see as part of his legacy something closer to the emergence of an independent Kurdistan in northern Iraq. So all of those, I think, were really important in leading up to the referendum. Do you want me to keep going? Want me to stop there in terms of the response to it? Yeah, let's get uh, uh, Lee. Uh, I think you have some background to Catalan nationalism. Sure. And, uh, um, I could spend I could spend twenty minutes easily yeah. talking about the history going back to the eleventh century. Um, and different moments. I'm not going to do that. Um, different moments of uh, sort of independence or judicial, greater judicial control or a distinct legal code or administrative responsibilities that were not um, the same as those of the Spanish state. But I would like, a, I would like to bring us back to perhaps um, slightly more recent history. Um, if I had to cite, I think, the origin of the present situation in Catalonia, I would return us to the years 1978 and 1979. Um, this is the year 1978 in which the current Spanish constitution was written, only three years after the death of Francisco Franco. Um, and it is, of course, an era of great promise, transition to democracy from dictatorship, but it's also an era of extreme duress. Um, again, with the dictatorship only recently having been, you know, having ended, uh, and many laws still in place uh, restricting freedoms during that time. And most political figures participating in what is referred to as a pacto de olvido, or a pact of forgetting. Um, so a po political culture of forgetting and forging ahead with the Spain of the future without addressing the crimes perpetrated during the military coup d'etat and the Franco dictatorship. 
So what does this have to do with Catalonia? Right? Catalonia's uh, original democratic era statute of autonomy dates from 1979, so one year after uh, the approval of the new democratic constitution. And it is only in uh, 2006 um, in which the Catalan parliament tries to pass a reform of this 1979 statute of Catalan autonomy. Okay, so now we're really getting to more uh, contemporary history. Basically, this uh, 2006 reform, which was approved overwhelmingly in a popular referendum in Catalonia, <coughs> is nonetheless basically uh, taken to court, right, by the Partido Popular or the popular party um, almost immediately after it is approved, as I say, in a, in a general referendum. So the popular party is a very conservative party. Um, Mariano Rajoy is the current president of Spain, for those of you not familiar with the sort of status of the state uh, government. So they take the Catalan Generalitat, or autonomous um, government, to court, asking Spain's constitutional court to find 187 articles of the Statute of Autonomy unconstitutional. Um, most of, uh, eventually, it takes four years, so now we're in 2010, uh, the Constitutional Court reaches a verdict. Uh, judges that were on that court had already passed away or left the court even by the time the sentence comes down. And they dictate an interpretation of, a distinct interpretation of 27 articles of this uh, referendum. <coughs> And, and new statute, sorry, pardon, new statute uh, of autonomy, and they find um, some 14 articles of the statute unconstitutional. So, almost all of the articles declared on, unconstitutional center on issues of judicial control, fiscal policy, and language use, right? Um, almost immediately after this 10, uh, 2010 verdict, we have more than a million people on the street in Barcelona, um, very angry about this uh, decision, protesting this decision. And so I would cite 2010 as another watershed year. As many Catalans at this point, many people from Catalonia see the inability to negotiate a statute of autonomy that truly offers them greater self-governance at that point as a reason to move for independence from Spain. Others within Catalonia see this self-determination referendum as one protected by international treaties, and uh, that Spain's constitutional court's declaration of the illegality of the autonomy referendum is a violation of Catalonia's right to self-determination. So after the Catalan parliament passed a declaration on the sovereignty and right to decide of the Catalan people in 2013, we have a consultation referendum on independence that was held in 2014 with 80% of the vote supporting the option of independence. So this is 2014, we're seeing 80% of those vote, that vote, and I'll talk in a bit about how many people are voting, voting for independence. So the president of the Generalitat was taken to court at that time for secessionist acts, and he was found guilty. In 2015, the Parliament passed, the Catalan Parliament passed a declaration to start the independence process in Catalonia, and this is what has triggered the events of just a handful of days ago, right? The October 1st referendum. The declaration stated that Catalonia would declare itself an independent republic if the yes to independence vote won the referendum. 
But what I want to really emphasize here is that neither the 2014 nor 2017 referendums saw a majority of the citizens of Catalonia vote. However, we have to keep in mind that legal action and more recently police violence by the Spanish state made the holding of both referendums very challenging. And moreover, that their non-binding status, at least according to the Spanish state, also likely impacted voter turnout. This is very good because um, let me just turn to Nicole and then I want to ask Tony more about the Spanish uh, state's reaction. But Nicole, um, you wrote a piece recently uh, for uh, Monkey Cage, Washington Post outlet, and uh, you have some interesting things to say about the, uh, the, the participation in this referendum and what it means in terms of uh, how widespread uh, the support is. And uh, can you just uh, talk about that a little bit? Uh, what, how does this, I mean, once the vote was taken, apparently, I mean, people are very proud and and they're all, of course, supportive of the idea. But give us a sense of what it was like during the vote itself, and uh, how do you explain this variation in, um, in uh, especially participation? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, I flew into Suleimani, which is uh, is four provinces in the Kurdistan region of Iraq now, three major ones. And then the fourth one, Halabja, which was recently created and is very small, and it was essentially broken off of Suleimani. And what was interesting for me was I had seen all of the news footage and the video footage of all of the pro-referendum flags and banners and demonstrations and enormous rallies in Erbil, which is another one of the provinces, and again, the capital city of the Kurdistan region is there, and also Duhok which is another one of the provinces. But in Suleimani, you essentially couldn't see a flag. And I know Tony was talking about in Catalonia, people wearing flags as cloaks. There was not a flag. I, I think we, we found two buildings that, were, that had hung a flag and no posters that said, yes, vote on the referendum. And there were a few official uh, election commission posters reminding people to get out and vote. But other than that, you wouldn't have known there was an independence referendum coming up. And in Halabja, which some of you may remember is the town that was gassed in 1988 and one of the worst ever chemical attacks on civilians ever. It was also a very kind of muted, quiet atmosphere. So this was something that was very, very striking. Um, overall, according to the official numbers that were being given, about 72% of voters in all four of these provinces, plus the Kurdistan administered areas, which include places like Kirkuk, so about 72% turned out to vote, about 92% of those are said to have voted yes. And um, speaking to people, what was very clear was that um, although almost everybody I knew and, and really the vast majority of Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan supported the idea in theory of separating from Iraq and forming an independent Kurdish state, there were very, very deep concerns in Suleimani province and in Halabja over not necessarily so much what it would mean for, for Kurdistan in terms of security against, say, Turkey or Iraq or Iran, but what it would mean for domestic Kurdish politics. And again, the referendum was called by uh, President Barzani, who leads the Kurdistan Democratic Party, which is one of the two traditional power holders in Iraqi Kurdistan. 
and has really dominated the scene, especially since 2014 and since now deceased former Iraqi president Jalal Talabani had a stroke. So the second major Iraqi Kurdish party, the, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, fell into some disarray after he had a stroke a few years back. And um, so that the people were concerned that um, if Barzani was able to pull off this independence referendum, that it would really cement his authority within the Kurdistan region. And many, many people in Suleimani and Halabja in particular are very unhappy with what they perceive of as the corruption and weak governance and lack of political transparency and economic transparency in the Kurdistan region. They blame Barzani for that and the KDP. And then they also really blame him for this financial crisis, which hit people in Suleimani particularly hard because more people there work for the public sector. So they were, they were really, they were really torn. And I spoke to a number of people who said, well, I'd like to vote yes because I want to support independence. I fought for it. I've dreamed of it my whole life, but I don't want to go out and contribute to a process that will legitimate the power of this president who, by the way, also, uh, essentially shut down the parliament a couple of years ago when the opposition parties looked like they might be getting too powerful. So there's been no functioning parliament in the Kurdistan region for two years. So instead of voting no, which for many of them felt they just couldn't bring themselves to do that, they said, I'm just staying home. And that's again interesting here is on the election night the televisions were all set up with their their maps like we're familiar with here at home you know the electoral maps of the different provinces and different districts and they looked all set to give us the data on turnout and the results and then they began broadcasting the turnout but only for the areas that are traditionally known as pro President Barzani pro KDP areas and they didn't broadcast the results for the other areas and then they stopped broadcasting them uh, entirely so um, so it's been really a challenge to, to track down this electoral data but the numbers that I've seen showed about 50 52 57 percent of people in Suleimani and Halabja provinces actually turning out and, um, and around 80, 85% of them voting yes. And then the rest were voting no, who actually turned out. Uh, whereas in the other provinces and the other districts, turnout was in the order of 80, 90% and overwhelmingly yes. So we see this very, um, this division that has um, long existed in the Kurdistan region between Suleimani province on the one hand and Erbil on the other we see that really being reinforced and reflected in these referendum results. And people are very concerned about, and I think with good reason, about what this will mean for democracy and transparency in the Kurdistan region. Thank you. Uh, Tony, I'll uh, just ask you about the, um, the reaction uh, to the process in Catalan. I mean, this is also an interesting area of comparison between the two cases. But I think a lot of people who are not following this uh, closely were surprised at the, uh, the violence uh, with which people were uh, kind of, they tried to block them from voting, they were dragged physically, they were hurt and harmed. So what, uh, so for someone who does, may not know uh, the context very well, I guess I have two questions. Uh, one is where, is, where does this violence come from? 
And the other is, uh, this is police, but is that a local police or is it a police that is sent from uh, Madrid, uh, from the central government? So can you say a few things about those? Sure, um, happy to, Erisad. So um, the, the election itself, the referendum was, there was opposition from the central government from the beginning to the referendum because they said it was unconstitutional. It is in fact unconstitutional according to the 1978 constitution that Lee was just talking about. Um, my sense from talking to people in Barcelona, people in Madrid, uh, both friends and strangers, taxi drivers and so forth was that in fact, the vast majority of those who were going to turn out to vote in the referendum and who in fact did turn out to vote, it was apparently about 2 million, 2.1, 2.2 million people of about four and a half million registered voters. Um, that those who turned out to vote in the referendum were in fact those who supported independence. Um, and that those who did not support independence or did not support the referendum boycotted it. They abstained. They, they didn't abstain. They didn't go to the polls on, on the one hand. So that is one of the factors. Of those who did turn out to vote, um, it, the overwhelming majority was in favor of uh, voted yes on the, on the referendum for independence, something like 90%. One of the people who responded to Puigdemont this afternoon um, said, yes, the, the taking into account the number of eligible voters 38% voted yes uh, in favor of, uh, of independence. Um, police in, in Spain, the police situation in Spain is extremely interesting, uh, the, the structure of it, because there are local police who are mostly traffic cops, you know, and, and deal with, uh, with domestic issues, local issues. Um, then there are the national police, uh, national police force, who um, are sent into the different regions. And uh, then there is the Civil Guard, the Guardia Civil, which is in fact a branch of the military. Um, and they follow military orders. Um, in Catalonia, this is complicated by, in Catalonia and in the Basque Country, both, this is complicated by the fact that there is an autonomous police force. So in Catalonia, it's the Mossos de Esquadra. Um, and there were conflicts, there are actually physical conflicts on October 1st in Barcelona and maybe in other cities as well, but in Barcelona, in Catalonia, between the Mossos de Esquadra, who for the most part did not want to enforce federal or, or central government rules that made the, outlawed the voting. Um, so the, mostly it was national police was sent in, but also the civil guard were sent in, and that's when the, the violence erupted because people who turned out to vote wanted to vote, um, they refused to vacate the polling centers, um, and so they were forcibly removed. Um, reports are that there were about uh, 900 people injured uh, on election day, uh, a few of them hospitalized, but a lot of them, you know, beaten, dragged, dragged by the hair and so forth. Those images were all over the Spanish media um, on October 1st and are probably the single most important factor in generating uh, favorable opinion, favorable public opinion 
for um, the Catalan independence movement. Uh, it was uh, a, a tactical error on the part of the right-wing government, the central government. Um, uh, Rajoy, the president or the prime minister of Spain, has been very equivocal about this issue. He's refused, he's been, uh, refused to take action, hasn't really done anything. Uh, he's been criticized for that, both from the left and the right. Um, and he really literally waited until the last minute when the election was actually going on to take action. The action he took was to send in the police um, and their, uh, and I, I don't know if you've seen the images, but they look like, um, uh, they look like Darth Vader, um, yeah. completely kind of dressed in black in, in um, bulletproof uniforms. Um, so that was the, the violence and that, um, as I say, that sparked a lot of sympathy, um, uh, for the, for the cause. Uh, I'd like to say, and, and then I'll, I'll stop, but there was one other, uh, one other interesting observation that I was able to make and got from talking with people. And that, that is that support for the referendum came from several different, well, first of all, came from a wide variety of the political spectrum. From um, the the bourgeois uh, right wing um, Catalan nationalists to the extreme left to the coup, um, who are basically anti system. Um, but so there were those who supported the referendum, said that the referendum should move forward because they believe in independence. There were other people, a great many people, who didn't necessarily support independence, but supported the democratic right to vote. And, um, and I think that was a very important factor. A lot of people I spoke with, and a lot of people I know said, this is a democracy. They should have the democratic right to vote on, on this issue. And then of course there was opposition saying, no, this one, this is Spain. Catalonia is, a, should not, is not an independent country, should not be an independent country, should not break up the unity, the, the hard, hard won unity of Spain. Um, and, um, and that it's unconstitutional, so they don't have the right to vote. Good. So, Lee, I want to uh, ask you also if uh, this uh, violent reaction surprised you. Uh, and, uh, and then I'm going to open it up for questions from the audience. So I had four colleagues, friends and colleagues, who were like Nicole, international observers of the vote on the 1st of October at various schools um, throughout Catalonia. And I was very worried for, for their safety, obviously, once I um, first saw some of their images, right? Because in the day of the uh, cell phone, there were just yeah. hundreds, if not thousands, of um, photographs and videos coming out uh, almost immediately once the voting stopped, started. And I would say even beforehand, because the schools were occupied by uh, people just sitting, you know, thousands of people would go to one school and sort of take over uh, the space to make sure that voting uh, would be accessible uh, to those that wanted to vote. Um, ballot boxes were hidden, uh, we think, in France and other parts, in the Pyrenees. We, you know, there's still a lot of mystery uh, shrouding how the ballot boxes even came to be in these various schools, because it was schools throughout Catalonia, right, where this, um, where the referendum on October 1st um, took place. But I would sort of second what Tony uh, said. I think it's very important to 
sort of mentioned that this is a very transversal um, kind of event in the sense that, you know, historically, if we go back to the 19th century in Catalonia, uh, independent, the independence movement was, in fact, very conservative. It was coming from the most conservative uh, parts of Catalan's bourgeois society. But that's no longer the case. Uh, there are a lot of young people that are invested in independence because they don't want to be in a monarchy. They want to be in a republic. Um, there are anti-system people that don't want to be in the Eurozone, right? Um, and therefore they see independence as a means to that. Uh, there are kind of middle of the road people that really just want to be independent from the, the conservative popular party, right? This is a way for them to divorce uh, that governing party. And then there are, are still those sort of bourgeois business interests in Catalonia that have, uh, for economic reasons, right, long sought the independence um, of, of Catalonia. Did I expect the Spanish state to respond with truncheons? Um, I mean, you don't have to look very far in the historical past of Spain um, to see this kind of violence present. Um, they, the Spanish uh, state rented two huge, um, uh, basically, cruise ships, um, one with Tweety Bird and Sylvester. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have seen those images. Um, and parked, in, parked them in various ports along the Catalan coast in preparation for the referendum. So that threat was certainly there before any, uh, before any violence um, broke out. Uh, but I guess you know, there's been a lot said about, um, I, think, I think the challenge here is that there's been a lot said from the Spanish state about uh, the unconstitutional nature of this referendum or about the illegality of it because they have sought to criminalize the process or to try and solve the pro problem by going through the courts. Um, and so, you know, when you, when you use legality and the, and, and the police in order to solve this problem, this is potentially a very uh, um, likely outcome, right? Um, so what there hasn't been is a political solution um, or will to, right. solve this, to solve this problem. Very good. Can I say one thing, Rishat? Of course. This is a follow-up to that. I thought it was a little bit ironic that this is one of those rare instances in which, or seemingly rare instances, in which we have a very similar event taking place in a European country mm. and uh, a place in the Middle East, and it was actually very peaceful. The referendum on the 25th of September in the Kurdistan region, people were afraid that violence might break out, but it was actually very peaceful, even in Kirkuk and Certainly many Kurds were turning to each other and saying, well, thank goodness we have our own security forces and that we don't have, you know, Iraqi um, forces from Baghdad patrolling our streets. But, but even so, it was a, you know, a kind of quiet and celebratory atmosphere throughout, really. Very interesting. All right, so I'm going to now open it up and uh, Jerry Backrack is the first question. Nicole, you know him very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Nicole, thank uh, you. Can you can you hear Nicole or Sherry? Yeah, I think I can. I well, it's Jerry. Who uh, he, he can always hear Jerry. <laughs> um, I'm curious uh, to the degree that such information is available. What was the response of Kurdish populations in Turkey, Iran, and Syria to the referendum? 
the response was very, very positive. And actually, I think, um, especially from Kurds in Iran and Iranian Kurdistan, and actually a lot of people in Iraqi Kurdistan, especially in Halabj and Suleimani, have family and family members. And a lot of Kurds from Iraq have spent years in camps in Iran and are very grateful, I think, to the Iranian Kurdish population there. So there's still a lot of links, but people came out on the streets in a number of Iranian Kurdish cities celebrating at no small risk to themselves. And then afterwards, there were actually news reports that some of them were being prosecuted by the Iranian government, and they were singing Kurdish songs. And I know I was with people, some of whom had, had decided not to go and vote for some of the reasons I talked about earlier, and they were really moved and even in Syrian Kurdistan and Rojava, um, among Kurds in Turkey, where you have very deep organizational divisions between the Iraqi Kurdish parties and the, the PYD, YPG in Syrian Kurdistan, and then also the, obviously between the PKK from Turkey, um, even though you have those organizational divisions, for ordinary people in these places, they were still, I think, um, inspired by and supportive of this process and what it represented. So I thought it was also another one of those moments where you can see that the, uh, a kind of common Kurdish cultural vision is still capable of transcending the organizational boundaries. We saw this also um, earlier with, with various battles um, as, as well, where you saw Kurdish communities rallying around. So it was, it was quite moving that way. No. Uh, to extend that question, what were the reactions of the neighboring countries, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran? And you mentioned the economic ties between um, Iraqi Kurdistan and Turkey and the um, oil export that is um, basically happening. Um, what, what is Turkey's reaction specifically with regards to that? Because it might be in their interest to get more oil and get that more securely, basically, from Iraqi Kurdistan. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, to some degree, I feel thus far that we've seen a lot of growling and threats and not very much concrete action against Kurdistan yet, uh, especially from Turkey, I would say. And, and definitely the night of the referendum, it felt like, you know, we were in this this little protected space with the wolves, you know, circling and growling around us with all kinds of threats to invade. And Turkey and Iraq were carrying out joint military maneuvers on the border, which they hadn't done for ages. But at the end of the day, after the referendum, um, I, I, Iraq, of course, um, immediately after a couple of days, they slapped an international air travel embargo on the Kurdistan region. And, um, Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, he's under tremendous pressure, I think, to, to appear to be responding very forcefully. And one thing to keep in mind here is that there's an election in Iraq November 1st. So many of the responses we see from Baghdad right now are all being done in the context of, of an upcoming election. And just in the last week, Iraq has also um, slapped a number of other kinds of economic sanctions. They stopped currency transfers, international currency transfers to the Kurdistan region, and um, have also stopped relations with four major Kurdish banks. So they're really trying to economically isolate the Kurdistan region if they can. And they're actually, Iraq is calling for the, quote, nullification 
of the referendum. But I think going back to what uh, what Tony was talking about in terms of this being an expression of popular will, the Iraqi Kurdish referendum that was not a legally, I mean, they were treating it as legally binding, but it has no legal basis. So essentially it was just asking people, what would you like? Would you like independence? They said, yes. How do you nullify that? I'm not, not really certain. Um, so for Tur so there's, there's, that's been, there's been a limited, an important but limited response from Baghdad. And I actually made it out of Suleimani on the last Turkish Airlines flight before that travel embargo hit. Um, from Turkey, again, there have been all kinds of threats, threats to shut down the pipeline, threats to close the Haber, Ibrahim Khalil border gate, um, and none of that has materialized thus far. And definitely, I think this is one of those situations where we see a tug of war here in terms of Turkish political interest or Turkish interests between the economic benefits of maintaining close relationships and a close relationship with the Kurdistan regional government on the one hand, and again, Iraq is Turkey's second largest trading partner after Turkmenistan. And I think just the first half of this year, um, I think there was something like $7 billion in trade coming from Turkey to Iraq. It's all passing through the Kurdistan region. And the vast majority of goods on Iraqi Kurdish shelves are from Turkey. So there's a tremendous amount of money to be lost here, as well as of course, um, oil and gas to be lost if Turkey slaps sanctions on the Kurdistan region. But on the other hand, um, the Turkish government is not interested in seeing its own Kurdish populations inspired by this example. Thank you. Yes. My name is Nelzana. I'm a retired U.S. Army colonel, and I was in northern Iraq during Desert Shield and Desert Storm and worked with Mr. Barzani there. And then uh, my, uh, I do not know much about Spain, unfortunately, I didn't get it. But uh, my statement uh, in question is on I, uh, Kurdistan. It is one thing, you know, we went in that area in 1990, and then we didn't know anything about it as the United States Armed Forces. And we supported Barzani. And then we supported the Kurds who fled away uh, from Saddam into the Turkish area. And then we had the second war. Now, it is one thing to declare independence and then, then to maintain the independence and democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also a Soviet area specialist. After the wall crumbled, we saw the ethnic groups and this nation, small nations. Some have been successful, most haven't been successful. You need some criteria to be successful for these movements. And then my question to you is, is as the United States, we do not have the nation-building experience. It is easy to send our troops and then help the people out. So what is next? Okay, let's suppose that uh, I think in Spain there is a culture of freedom and democracy and they can be successful maybe. But in Kurdistan, uh, what are we as the first among equals, the United States? What is our reaction going to be? Are we going to be able to support them? how successful they can be. And no one has been successful after the World War I, 
First World War, they designed, the Brits designed the borders, and then they, they were out, and what are we going to do? Can the United States be successful? Actually, this is a good question, because uh, I was going to come to this eventually, and uh, I'm curious, I mean, you asked about the Iraq, but I'm curious about the European Union reaction to, to this uh, movement. Uh, so there is a conflict between ideas of self-determination and freedom as opposed to trying to create, you know, maintain the status quo. And uh, So maybe I'll, um, even though you're, uh, you're sort of focusing on northern Iraq, I, I do want to maybe uh, turn to Tony and, and, and me and see how they read or, or European Union reaction to what's going on in Catalan? Yeah, sure, um, Rasat. It's, uh, it's a really interesting question. It's one that I've been thinking about quite a bit with that this brings up the, the independence movement. So um, there are, by recent census, there are about seven and a half million people living in Catalonia. I won't say seven and a half million Catalans because many of them are um, of origins from different parts of Spain, from from the poorer parts of Spain, from Andalusia and Extremadura, who in the 60s migrated um, as labor there. And so they're second generation and third generation uh, charnegos, as they're called, um, immigrants, uh, basically. But uh, even so, let's say there's seven and a half million, eight million people living in Catalonia. That makes a very small country. But one of the really interesting, I'll, I'll get to the European Union in just a second, but one of the interesting issues that it brings up for me is that in an era of um, increasing globalization and uh, leveling, elimination of borders, at least for the free movement of capital, uh, if not of human populations, um, that the response to that, and I think in many ways it's quite a quite a uh, natural response, is balkanization, extreme nationalism, right, and breaking down into these tiny units, um, which is not always. And this I, I think goes back to the question that was just asked: is not always successful, uh, particularly economically successful. Um, so. <clears throat> You know, look at the former uh, Yugoslavia, for instance, which is broken down into five countries now. Um, and, and what the consequences of that have been over the last 20 years or 25 years, however long it's been. Um, so I think that's very interesting. All indications seem to be that if, if Catalan independence does go through, there's no guarantee that the European Union will accept them uh, into the Union into the European Union. So then what do they do for currency, right? Um, is it gonna take a passport to go from, from Valencia to Barcelona, right? Or to fly into Barcelona, um, you need a separate uh, visa and passport than you do to fly into Spain and so forth. So I think those are some of the really interesting questions, but it's also in the light of Brexit, right? And this, this Again, that's a, as nearly as I can tell, that's a movement of extreme nationalism, right? And I think that uh, I think England, in fact, is already regretting 
that vote to to back out of the European Union because it appears to have been a nationalist response without a real understanding of what the EU is or was. Um, so, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that's sort of, uh, it would be interesting to see what Lee has to say about this with, uh, with regard to Catalonia and... I mean, I think, I think that the independence movement in Catalonia from the outside has been as read as more nationalistic than it is, which might offend some people in this room, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I think that uh, because that's where, that's where it or originates in the 19th century, but I think if you look on the ground today and talk to people about what motive would motivate them um, to cast a C or a yes vote uh, in the October 1st referendum, it's not necessarily about linguistic difference or cultural difference. I mean, I think that it is for some portion of the, uh, of the population and a significant uh, portion. But I, I, I would just encourage us to not uh, sort of equate the independence movement in Catalonia with Catalan nationalism only. What, what do you think it is? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I sort of, I sort of wanted to, that, that's where I was going before, right? You have, you have kind of very left-wing young people that want nothing to do with the uh, governing party in Madrid right now. You but have I think that's a minority. I'm sorry? I think, I think that's a minority. I think, but I think that it's... Of the separatists. Right. Um, but I think that there is also, there are also people that are just sort of, they feel that the relationship between Spain and Catalonia has broken down, that it doesn't function anymore, and that starting anew is potentially the only way to to go, right? And I'm, I'm not defending that position, but I feel like it is one of... It is one of many um, positions that you hear. So it's not just the, uh, you know, nationalist sentiment, because the nationalist sentiment in terms of the, the percentage support for independence, even going back to, say, 2000, was much slighter than it is now, right? Agreed, yes. And so something, something has shifted, right? And who are those people and why are they... Why are they coming on board right uh, now for for, um, for for independence? Um, in terms of what's going to happen or international implications and, and the reaction of the European Union, I think that the Catalan government is very aware that they will be dismissed from the European Union if they do right go the route of um, independence. France has already declared that they won't recognize an independent um, Catalonia, but. I think that there are many Catalans who are asking themselves, what is the point of the European Union, who has, you know, which has refused to be involved in this conversation? They've said it's a Spanish problem, right? Um, so is the European Union nothing more than a free trade association then? Um, this is, I mean, this is something that I hear regularly, right, when I talk to Catalans about this, uh, about this question. And when I say Catalans, I mean citizens of Catalonia, because right. there are people, not just from other parts of Spain, but from uh, Latin America uh, and other Eastern Europe, right, yeah. uh, that, that uh, especially are in uh, Barcelona and Girona. Um, there has been some suggestion then if the European Union will not get involved and step in and help negotiate uh, this uh, this impasse, right, uh, a way forward through this impasse, 
There have been Catalan business leaders that have suggested, well, why don't we just join the European Free Trade Association, right? Um, I mean, there have been crazy things said like this, but there's some frustration, I think, with the lack of um, political will, not just from the Spanish government, but from the European Union uh, uh, as well. Um, so, okay. so <laughs> can I start? Oh. Again. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Nicole. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Uh, I actually, I just wanted to. Yeah, go ahead. So many things I could say, but I, it's Lee, right? Is that? Yeah. I, I would actually say that even again, though it might seem surprising, uh, at least a, a good number of people who voted yes for the referendum in Iraqi Kurdistan are also doing so for reasons I think that have more to do with governance and good governance issues than what we might consider classic ethno-nationalism. I think that's the and, case in Catalonia too. Yes, yeah, so it has to do with perceptions of lack of accessibility to governmental decision-making in the Iraqi case, the perception from Iraqi Kurds that the Iraqi state itself is so weak as to be useless. And then again, you know, militarily, economically, all the disputes and and the feeling that it would be easier to concentrate on resolving problems at home at a more local level, even though you still have many people who are also dissatisfied with the Kurdistan regional government. They feel that they have more control over it. And I, I think that we can see that in other referendums as in Scotland too. It's not so much that people are running around, you know, just filled with Scottish nationalism as they are dissatisfied with the the governing framework. I think that, I mean, that's why I sort of took us back to option. the yeah. autonomy statute and the inability to no negotiate more self-govern, right? More self-govern. Yes. So I have three questions. So you are first. We were yeah, patiently waiting. Yes. Um, closely related to what um, you were saying. Mm -hmm. Can you hear people? Not quite. That I couldn't hear. Yeah. Okay. Um, my question is related to what uh, Lee was saying. Uh, according to the official statistics, in 2010, 14% of the uh, population in Catalonia considered themselves themselves only Catalans. Two years later, the figures doubled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now there are about 30% of them consider themselves more Catalan, only Catalan. Mm -hmm. um, considering that Catalonia is one of the most autonomous regions in the whole Europe. Um, they can decide their own education. They can decide their own uh, uh, safety uh, um, policy system. They can decide their own health and a lot of many more things. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, what is the reason for them, I mean, for these figures to have increased enormously in a short period of time? I think it's multifaceted. I mean, sort of what I was getting at is I don't think that you can um, blame one, you know, uh, group for that increase. I think that on many, many, you kind of walk out onto a street, right, uh, and interview people and say, why are you for or against um, independence? And, uh, you know, just the, the, the person walking down the street, you will get 10 different answers uh, as to why someone wants Independence. Education and so, is an important part. The education that they have received in the schools, 
I mean, certainly, right? I mean, there's a cultural, there's a cultural world that's forming people that live within, that live within Catalonia. There can be no doubt, just as there's a cultural world that's forming people that live within Castile or that live within uh, Galicia or other parts of the Spanish state. In fact, that's undeniable. Um, but I don't think that uh, it's, it's uh, I, again, I want to go back to the word transversal. It cuts through so many different segments of Catalan society, the interest in at least holding a referendum, if not a yes vote. But I think you're right that the economic crisis sort of intensified, right? Yeah. For that segment of the population where the economic issue was the issue for independence, the economic, you know, the world crisis, <laughs> economic crisis sort of intensified those. Yeah, with tremendous, tremendous power, yeah, tremendous. Okay, so there's one more question there, and I do want to ask something, Nicole, before you disappear. So hold on. Yeah. Um, how much, if at all, have both major media and social media, especially since 2008, which I think that is also one of the variables to think about besides the economic downturn, um, is the prevalence and explosion of social media. How much has that really impacted what's going on and what's driving things? Um, one of the major things that we saw here in the United States uh, was the violence. And people have talked about the violence. However, we also said that 2.2 million people were out in the streets. Only 900 were injured. That's 0.04%. Um, whereas in Cameroon, they had independence protests a few days ago. And they brought military helicopters up and shot people. Uh, Wall Street or Occupy Wall Street here in the United States, Berkeley protests. We, we've shot people with rubber bullets here. We hit them with pepper spray and nobody freaks out about the violence. Um, so, so I feel like from my perspective, I'm seeing social media uh, really driving this. Uh, uh, people saying, you're seeing the same videos and over and over again. Um, we see a lot of the Catalonian protesters being assaulted by LaGuardia Civil but we don't see much of the video of the woman wrapped in the Spanish flag that was being beaten by the Catalonian people. Mm. So how much influence does social media, who's driving that? Who's driving the social media influence and who's driving the, the commercial media influence to impact how we all see what's going on there? Putin. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my answer for you, Tony. Putin. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, yeah, Actually, um, I mean, I have, I have not an answer, but I, I mean, I have uh, a response in a way. And that is, I mean, one of the differences I, in, that accounts for this, yes, and I think, I believe social media does play and has played a tremendous, uh, tremendous role in this. But um, we have to remember the recent history of Spain and of violence in Spain. Spain emerged less than 40 years ago from a 40-year brutal dictatorship. By brutal, I mean one in which a country of 24 million people in 1939, it's in the next few years, it's conceivable that Franco executed, or Franco's forces, executed up to 200,000 people, and they're buried in mass graves. So there's, uh, this, this memory is still very much alive in Spain today for government forces unleashed on a civilian population still 
um, picks at it, 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 it opens these uh, wounds which are not yet healed. And I think that has to be very much uh, part of what of this response. Yeah. Let me, uh, before Nicole goes, Nicole, I actually I have two questions for you. One is curiosity. Uh, I was wondering if uh, people you were talking to in, um, in Kurdistan, are they, were they following the events in Spain and Catalan? Is that, is that in their, uh, you know, consciousness? So what was that? And I have another question, but <laughs> go ahead. Uh, the short answer is yes, they were. I mean, most people I know, and I found this actually true in Turkey as well, but in the Kurdistan region of Iraq are very aware of and following closely what's happening in the you know, outside of Kurdistan and in current events. Often they're much better informed about, say, American politics than we are here. And they were closely following what was happening in Catalonia. I don't, I, I think they were really surprised and shocked by what they perceived of, at least as the violence afterwards. Um, I, I didn't hear a lot of analysis about it, but they were certainly aware of it. And then there were some comparisons that were drawn. And also the point made that whereas the Catalan referendum had a, this 48 hour window in which afterwards, if the vote was yes, it was supposed to be, independence was supposed to be declared. This was not the case in the Kurdish referendum, which was supposed to be used as a kind of um, platform from which to move forward into dialogue. But there was no timeline that was specified. Okay. If, if I may, it sounds, yeah, it sounds to me like that uh, referendum that happened in Kurdistan now is what the Catalans were trying to do in 2014 with this consultation vote, which they had hoped would open dialogue with the state government, but not right uh, just from the just from the reading that I've been that I've been yeah. and Rachel did you have another question or I can there's other things I can respond to that were raised to well actually you did uh, inadvertently answered because I wanted to know I mean with the Catalan situation we are following now the Spanish government could respond and the, the leaders in Catalonia uh, said that they're suspending their uh, uh, declaration of independence so there's a process so I was curious about the process uh, in the Kurdistan region but but you did you did explain yeah, this there is no it's often the case that there is no process in the Kurdistan region I, I, I find this over and over again whereas in peace processes for instance and other sorts of processes where in other parts of the world there are very institutionalized um, very publicly specified processes for say holding a referendum, for arriving at a declaration of independence, for a peace process. In the Kurdistan region, it's generally not the case. A lot happens behind closed doors and a lot happens because one man says, this is what we should do and then tries to bring various people on board. Yeah. So there's no clear process at this point. And Baghdad says, we're not having any negotiations with you until you nullify the results. Right. Okay. So you, you wanted to respond also to the social media question? Or? Uh, I could, yeah. I, I do think it's important to, to recognize that um, although social media is very important in Iraqi Kurdistan for sharing information, especially in such an information-scarce society, um, in 2005, an unofficial referendum for independence was organized by civil society organizations right after um, the overthrow of the Ba'ath regime, so you know, a couple of years after the U.S. invasion, 
and it was overwhelmingly supported. I didn't see social media playing a very important role here uh, in terms of shaping people's um, decision about whether they wanted to participate or whether they wanted to vote yes or no. And actually, again, in Iraqi Kurdistan, a lot is done informally. Word of mouth, personal networks are all really important. And the fact that Barzani, President Barzani, came finally to Suleimani after years. This is the second major city in Iraqi Kurdistan, and he hasn't been there for three years. And gave a, a very well-attended rally was important to people. The fact that he did not go to Halabja was important to people. But in the aftermath of the referendum... There was, uh, you know, people were really getting information from Twitter, especially, and from Facebook. So the, they're important for that and for connecting people that way. Um, and then just the one thing I wanted to raise, going back to the earlier question, which I thought was really the, the point made earlier about the fact that independence does not necessarily bring democracy. And I think that's really, really important. And... Um, the United States actually came down very harshly against the Kurdish independence referendum. And there were a number of State Department's memos that were issued that were very, very critical. And some people within Iraqi Kurdistan felt that Baghdad had in some ways been empowered by the forcefulness of the American um, critique of the referendum. Um, but there are definitely concerns going forward, especially among the opposition parties and opposition movements within the Kurdistan region, that, uh, that independence as it would seem to be developing at this point um, might really um, suppress any kind of opposition and democratic tendencies. And it, one thing that was really ominous, I thought, was that um, because there had been no functioning parliament for two years, um, President Barzani put together a, a commission, a referendums commission, that managed the campaign. And after the referendum was approved, he actually reformulated that into a, a kind of high political council, which then promptly issued a, a memo with seven points, uh, kind of a, a kind of program for the way forward that included the statement that the function of the Kurdish media was to support national unity and that media that did not abide by that limitation might be subject to uh, repression or to court procedures. And of course, that was something that people thought was really, really worrying in terms of the way forward for a more democratic Kurdistan region. Um, I do have to run, but I, I wish I could stay. This was fabulous. And I enjoyed spending this hour and a half or so with all of you. And I feel like I learned a tremendous amount. So thank you. Thank, Thank you, so Nico. Much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> I have to figure out how to get out of here. So I'll <laughs> just, just, leave the, just leave the room. <laughs> All right. Bye uh -huh. so, uh, bye. Bye bye. Are there any questions? Yes. Go ahead. Um, would either of you be able to speculate a little bit on what the central government's most likely responses are going to be in the medium term, the next three to three Okay. I'll let Lee answer that. Yeah. <laughs> no, you get started, Lee. Um, I'm, I'm extremely worried about what they might see. Um, so, you know, poll after poll after poll has said that 80% of people who live in Catalonia want a binding referendum. There is no way 
within the by you know within within the boundaries of the 1978 Constitution for that to happen, um, right? Uh, the you know Tony spoke about the uh, comments that Puigdemont made in the Parliament today in reference to the you know basically he was addressing the Parliament to speak of what happened on the first of October in the referendum. And the anticipation, of course, was that there would be a declaration of independence because that is what the law that was passed, right? In, in the Catalan Parliament said, we will hold a referendum and if it wins by a majority, then right, we will proceed within 48 hours to uh, declaring independence. Um, I think, I don't know how many of you know about Ada Colau, who's the mayor of Barcelona, but I think she's a really interesting political figure. Um, she doesn't come from either the kind of nationalistic traditional parties uh, associated with you know, sort of the independence movement in Catalonia historically, nor is she uh, from either the Socialist National Party from Spain or the Partido Popular, the Conservative Party from Spain. She really comes from a social justice background um, and kind of rose up during, um, during the austerity Right, the era of austerity and the economic crisis because she fought for, um, she fought basically to not have grannies evicted from their homes around Barcelona, right? So she was very on the ground working locally. Um, and she's the first woman mayor of Barcelona ever. She's openly declared that she is anti-independence of Catalonia. But she again and again said that she feels that the guilt or, or the, 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 the guilty parties in this situation are not the Catalan government, but instead the Spanish government. Right? The Catalan government has asked again and again and again for there to be some negotiation to open dialogue on this question. Um, they've asked for European parties to intercede. Most recently, Switzerland offered to dialogue between, right, to serve as a, sort of a, a mediator between Catalonia, the Catalan government, and um, the, the government in Madrid, and the PP government in Madrid said, no, we will not negotiate on this question until the Catalans give up and set aside any search for independence, was basically what's been said again and again from, um, from, the, from the national government. So I, I think that her call, this is Ada Colau, the mayor of Barcelona, is sort of the one um, uh, sort of um, sane or, or what do I want to say, a voice of reason uh, in, the, in the midst of right. all of this. She sort of said, look, there has to be a political solution to this. The fact that the PP government from Madrid is sending police, is using the courts to criminalize this process does not have a positive result for either the national government or the Catalan government. There has to be a will to dialogue about this. And thus far, the response from the national government has been never. So I, that doesn't answer your question, <laughs> uh, but I, I think that um, you know, we're, we're ahead of some very, very interesting days. So Tony, you have the last word. 
Oh, well, uh, I, would, I, I have no idea how this is going to be resolved and how the, the central government is going to deal with it. But I'd like to go back to a point that um, Lee made, because I think it's really interesting. I think it's at the root of some of what's going on, and that is the political crisis that's been developing in Spain with particular intensity since 2008, since the crash. And we have to remember that um, there is currently 25% unemployment in Spain, and that it's gotten, it's improved from the, 2000, from the crash of 2008, 2009, that 50% of the population between the age of 18 and 35 has never held a job. They've never had their first job. Um, that Europe in, and China and the Middle East and Latin America are full of young, well-educated Spaniards who are trying to make a living. Um, and part of the response to that, and this is why I think Ada Colau, the current mayor of, of Barcelona, is so interesting. She does not represent either, it was, Spain has its parliamentary system, but it's a two-party system, uh, essentially. There's a uh, uh, left-wing, no, there is a less conservative party and a more conservative party. Mm -hmm. There's the the Socialist Party, which is socialist in name only, and there's a so-called Popular Party, the People's Party. Um, and three years ago, uh, suddenly a new party arose on the left and a new party arose on the right. And they all, and that's the um, Podemos on the left, and which Aracolau is really grows out of the Catalan version of Podemos, yes we can, and Ciudadanos, Ciudadans on the right, which is sort of a civilized right-wing party, which is tries to differ, which differentiates itself from the the dominant popular party. So, in the the elections, uh, municipal and autonomous region elections in nineteen in two thousand fifteen, the vote was split pretty much evenly, twenty five percent for each of the parties. So these two new parties arose with tremendous power, and their testimony, I think, and then so the central government has had to make all kinds of very weird coalitions, mm -hmm. the, the PP, the, the popular party, to stay in power with their traditional enemies. Um, so I think what really is going on, one of the things that's going on is that there is a, a realignment and a redefinition. Um, and it's sort of, uh, I, I actually find it so oddly akin to the Bernie Sanders Trump phenomenon in the U.S. at roughly the same time, right? That is, uh, the two main traditional parties are politically bankrupt. They're no, they're no longer meeting the people where the people want. Nobody believes in them, right? So what are we going to do? Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out in Catalonia and Spain in the next, it'll happen within the next week, which will be really interesting. <laughs> Well, I do want to thank you very much, Tony. I'm, I'm glad the fire held off. And yes, we, yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. And I think we will have, I'm sure we will have more occasions to discuss this topic in the coming months. And uh, thank you, and we'll keep in touch. Great, thank you. Nice to, nice to see you.